All right, so you can wear the headphones, then we all look more professional, we feel more professional. Um, this is the Convergent Science Network. You do the fight of the Concords robot song. Do you know that one? Leading yeah. researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory, and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Preston. <laughs> no, it's you that's breathing. No, heavily. no, no, no. It is. No, no, it is. It's you. It's you. No, 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 no. Honestly, no, check. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad we settled that. Where are your headphones? It's Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast together with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott. BCBT 2015 in Barcelona. And we're here with Kate Jeffrey. And, and Kate, you were presenting the, your work, which is actually very exceptional, in the sense that you, you look at how three-dimensional space is represented in the brain. So how did you come to studying three-dimensional space from the perspective of the rodent brain? Are there flying rodents somewhere? Um, <laughs> there aren't flying rodents, but um, I had been studying two-dimensional space for a long time, as everybody else had been as well. And um, I guess we just started to get interested in the question of whether this map is really just a flat map or whether it's actually got some you know, three-dimensional structure. The world is three-dimensional. And um, we got into the, this line of work because I was talking with my um, friend and colleague, Andre Fenton, who had been thinking along similar lines in New York, and he had built this fantastic spiral staircase and the idea had been to see if pl these place cells would produce place fields on the spiral staircase and whether there would be a vertical kind of structure to the place fields. And uh, he didn't have time to run the experiment. So he said, look, I'll bring it over to London and you can have a go with it. <laughs> so I set my student Madeleine Variotis onto recording on this thing. It was very, very difficult because the, the rats go round and round and round and round. And uh, it's like running up and down a five five floor building you know all day long so they got quite tired but she managed to get some really nice data and we found that place fields indeed seem to extend into the vertical dimension and then at around that time grid cells were discovered and so it became a natural question do grid cells also show some vertical structure so she began recording grid cells on this spiral staircase and another student that I had started recording them on this other piece of apparatus a climbing wall and and we found these um, results that were quite surprising and yet consistent with each other, which is that the grid cells, which fire in this periodic way in the horizontal plane, didn't do that in the vertical dimension on either of those, those apparatuses. And so then that led us to do some thinking about why that might be, and, and basically the whole research program took off from there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, but then, um, so, so, so you're in this laboratory which... Also, it's, it's, uh, it includes O'Keefe, who won the Nobel Prize for, for his work on the place cells. So the whole environment dedicated to understanding, let's say, spatial cognition in, in, in the rat. Um, so were you, I mean, if you, if you look at, at the op opportunities you have with, within that playing field, where in some sense the, the structure doesn't give you a lot of different cells to look at because you would have your grid cells, you have your place cells, and you would have heading direction cells. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, now in, in the end, if you look at the three-dimensional representation uh, in the red brain, you focus very much on, on the grid cells ultimately. But, but, but we're not there yet, right? But, because that's not necessarily where you started. So, how, right. so yeah. how did you work your way through that system and why did you make then the different choices that you did make? Well, it, it was partly just chance. So we started with place cells because at the time we had place cells and head direction cells. Um, and Jeff Talby, who had 
been working very intensively with head direction cells, had already started looking at how they they um, behaved in three dimensions. Did some really, really beautiful work, which I didn't fully come to appreciate till we started to do something similar. <laughs> Realised it's very, very, very difficult. Um, so play cells are the natural place to start, really. But then grid cells came along, and the exciting thing about grid cells is that they have this metric component to their activity where the, the, they are actually encoding distance. So um, they... They are plausibly the fabric for this map, if you like, the thing that actually gives it you know, the capacity to do navigational calculations and, and things like that. So when grid cells came along, it just became a very, very exciting question. Do they, do they measure out distances in three dimensions? And if they do do that, how do they do that? Um, we know they need a compass to be able to do what they do in two dimensions, so does that mean they need a three-dimensional compass? We know that they form these beautiful hexagonal patterns on a flat surface. Does that mean that they form a three-dimensional lattice pattern? Like all, all sorts of questions came along um, following on from, from that mm -hmm. discovery. So it was very exciting. So you started out in your talk saying that to navigate you need a, a map, a compass, a way of measuring distance and a way to self-localise. But then as your talk progressed, it seemed that maybe in the rat things aren't quite so clear-cut because... Like you say, the grid cells, uh, when people first found them, thought this is the metric. This is uh, telling me how far I am in space relative to some starting point. But then as the evidence came in, these grid cells also appear to depend upon uh, contextual cues. And you talked about boundaries and you talked about odors. So, I mean, can you just explain how you think... Uh, these other conceptual clothes that are affecting the grid cells and what impact that has on this idea of how we navigate in space? Well, so contextual cues are things that characterise a space but don't have spatial information in and of themselves. So mm -hmm. um, in the rat, we, we use the manipulations of the colour of the environment or the, the smell of the environment or things like that. Uh, for ourselves, we could think of things like the decor in a, in a room or something like that. So that helps you know which room you're in, um, but doesn't really tell you where you are in the room. And um, my lab had been interested for quite some time in how those contextual cues, those non-spatial cues, modulate the activity of place cells. And we had come up with a model that suggested that the place cells are getting spatial information from somewhere that's fairly raw metric information about boundaries and distances and directions. And they're getting contextual information through another pathway, and those two pathways interact, and the contextual cues act to select which of the spatial inputs a given place cell will respond to. So that was the model that we had at the time that grid cells were discovered. And then when they were discovered, it seemed like they might be the spatial component of this model. Yes. So, so these are they're these things that seem to be spatial, but... Um, not much more than that, as far as we could tell. So then we sort of became curious, well, what do they do when we change the context? And we actually thought changing the context would have very little effect on grid cells because we thought their job is just to mark out distances. Why should they care about the colour or the odour of the environment? So it was a little bit surprising when we found that they do actually respond. Um, so now what we're thinking, trying, trying to put together what we've observed together with what makes adaptive sense when you think about the evolutionary function of these things. Um, my thinking is that the, the contextual cues indeed interact with the spatial cues to drive the place cells. The place cells in turn are helping the grid cells know where to fire. So we're 
thinking, and it's not our idea, it's something, it's an idea that many people have contributed to, but we're thinking that there's this to and fro interaction between the place cells and the grid cells, where the grid cells help the place cells remain oriented in the middle of a big open space. And then the place cells help the grid cells to know which environment they're in, using the context cues and all the rest of it. Um, and that makes sure that the grid cells will will fire in the correct place for a given environment. So the two two cell types are kind of helping each other out. And that is a, a little bit how people go about building uh, simultaneous localization and mapping SLAM systems in in robots. So I mean, is is the um, so I know that uh, SLAM was actually informed by research on rodent navigation. Uh, David Reddish actually was pointing this out to us a few weeks ago. Um, to how to what extent is your research now being influenced by these ideas from modeling and maybe even from robotics? Um, well, one of the one of the things that's come along recently, which I, which I um, admit to not knowing very much about, but I'm finding increasingly intriguing, are, are these deep neural networks that um, roboticists have started to use in, in some of their their um, kind of robot models of navigation. And I was always sceptical about ne neural networks as a um, general kind of concept because a neural network is a very homogeneous thing to my untrained eye. <laughs> Whereas we could, we could see in the brain that it's very modular. There's a, a module for processing compass information and there's a module for processing distance and a module for processing this and that. And It just feels to me like the architecture is very much more intricate than you get with a neural network. So for a long time I had felt that neural networks have their uses but they don't really explain how the brain works. But it transpires with these deep neural networks that have many, many layers that when you... When you train them up and train them up and train them up, they start to acquire some internal structure, actually. And when you probe elements of these things, you do see things that look like they have subcomponents of the of the cognitive computation. So, I, so I guess what I'm starting to take back from the robotic field is that maybe you can get something that looks like a modular system out of something that started out fairly homogeneous with some simple rules and a lot of parallel processing capability. And I think that's kind of an intriguing idea and... Um, I'm not sure how it would inform our experiments, but it certainly informed how I how I think the brain might come to do what it does. Right. So, so maybe it would inform experiments on the development of uh, this system. I, I, I don't know if there's a big literature on that yet, is there? A, a literature is, is starting yeah. to develop. So um, recently, um, people from, um, from UCL and also from Trondheim in parallel have been looking at development of the good, good cell and play cell and head direction system. Um, and these cells come on stream very early. Yeah. Interestingly, the grid cells seem to come on latest of all. And yeah. the first thing to come along is the head direction cells, uh, which makes a certain amount of sense, actually, because you can imagine that compass direction is primary. But we had, we, we were starting to think that place cells emerged from the activity of grid cells. And then when these developmental findings came along, we started to think, actually, maybe it's the other way around. And maybe... Um, Maybe it's far more interactive than we had realised. Um, I think the, develop, the development story assumes a certain amount of hardwired modularity. So I don't think it's completely analogous to the, the yeah. deep, deep learning networks quite yet. But I think we will probably be moving towards some kind of hybrid system where mm -hmm. the deep learning networks have a modularity to start with and then they, they right. take off. And, uh, yeah. You probably know far more about this. Than well, I, I think... Um, <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, we, we've had some interesting discussions about deep learning. We've managed to avoid this as a topic for this summer school until now. So I'm <laughs> pleased it's come up. I know Paul has some uh, strong views on, okay. on deep learning. I thought I detected but, some raised eyebrows there, so I'd be interested to... <laughs> So well, I think the, I think they're deeply overrated and, and overhyped. Um, in computational neuroscience, these ideas of let's say uniform computational principles uh, giving rise to cortical-like filter hierarchies are around since the late eighties, um, where, where people have been talk, calling them objective functions. So we can think about building classifier hierarchies you know, using let's say, uh, the, the reduction of, of, of redundancy in the context of sparse coding, which Olshausen and Fields proposed first. Other people, like Peter Koenig, myself, have been uh, emphasizing issues like um, a smoothness. Like, like you, can, you can acquire a whole cortical-like hierarchy from, from V1 to hippocampus, by hippocampal-like place cells by just optimizing the slowly varying features in your, in your input and decorrelating them within layers. So mm. this stuff we know for at least 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, and deep learning is a variation on that theme. Mm. It's, it's, it's just done by people who, who tell a somewhat different story and who are a little bit less informed about the neuroscience so they have a tendency to overgeneralize. Mm. Because the point is, what does it mean to explain the brain? You can take inspiration from whatever you want. You can take inspiration from this cup of water. You can take your inspiration from a deep learning network. But explain the brain also means that you have to account for the constraints that you find in that system. Mm. And if you look at the grid cell system, as an example, uh, just the anatomical structure has very specific properties that, yes. that you just don't get for free. Yeah. They're, mm. they're, they very, have a very interesting dorsal ventral organization. They are, are organized also in, in, in sort of in the laminar sense in a very curious kind of way. These are the kinds of things you must explain, right? And that you can have a model that learns these grid-like properties in some way. Okay, but that's... That's not really explaining anything. It mm. tells you, okay, I can get a grid-like response in something, but I think you have to also show that that you do it with networks that are informed and constrained by the known physiology and anatomy, and that's usually not done. For instance, there are a number of so-called attractor models of grid cells where people show I can get grid-like responses if I have an attractor, which basically means I have the liberty in the world to wire up a bunch of cells and now I have a grid-like response. But that's not a grid-like response. You have a grid-like response if you can show that if you drive your map with the velocity vector that is continuous and relates to the movement of your agent, that then you have a repetitive pattern of firing that follows the grid cell structure. And that's a very different kind of, of, of challenge mm. than replicating a, a, a picture you took from a journal of neuroscience or from nature neuroscience in MATLAB. Mm. It's not building a model. Yeah. right? Yeah. So in that sense, I'm, we've done it, we've seen it. I don't think we are explaining much with it. Yeah, no, I, I agree that I think these one-size-fits-all models don't work because you know I, I I just think the brain is far too complex. But I think you can learn, you can get insights from some of these models that make you think about uh, the system in a in a way that maybe you, so maybe you weren't attending enough to certain kinds of things. That, you know, for example, you may have been postulating more complexity in the assumed wiring than is necessary to mm-hmm. get the the complex. Um, kind of behaviours that you see, like cell types with extremely specific properties, yeah. for example. And, um, and and so I think it just makes you think about things in a different way. As, as a physiologist, you, for example, I've started to think maybe maybe our parcellation of cells into the, these categorical, um, you know, 
categories like like grid cells and play cells, maybe we're being constrained by our um, predetermined modular model. And in fact, if we really approached it from a slightly different perspective, we'd see that there's a continuum of, mm-hmm. of, of response types in this area. And, and when you look at interrhinal cortex, indeed, it's true there are grid cells and there are head direction cells and there are border cells, but there's everything in between as well. And mm-hmm. so we may have been over egging the, the modular side of things. I, yeah, but, I think, um, I think the, the point is that the interaction goes both ways. So um, the, the biologists learn from the uh, people who are developing uh, models and also AI systems about the power of, of learning but also self-organization to, to restructure uh, networks. Um, and then actually there's a lot coming back the other way so that the, um, and without necessarily acknowledging where it came from, people are using ideas from the brain to develop these these new intelligent self-organizing systems. So um, I, I think we can all agree that, that when we look at deep learning systems as they are now, they're not very brain-like. But w- what I think is has been shown in the last decade, say, is that with sufficiently powerful computers, and the brain is a very powerful computer, some simple principles can give you really powerful performance, and that's now coming through in the world of technology. Mm. So, yeah, uh, but I'm just saying, Tony, that we already knew that. Well, you knew start, it. No, no, all started old house in the fields. <laughs> There's a huge tradition. Look, this is the whole problem, right? We're always riding this wave of amnesia. Like, oh, I, I rediscover something people wrote up five years ago, but but the time concept of collective memory in the field is just yeah. so short, people all forgot about it. But it's not and just that's that. Deep, I think that's pe- deeply annoying. People dismissed it <laughs> because they said, well, these things are limited in terms of what they can do. No. They're not giving us the solutions we want. Let's go and look elsewhere. And then you see 20 years later, the computers just get more powerful, and these things are delivering some of the things that, that we Well, there's a dirty trick, though, that people to. don't talk about. The dirty trick is it's all supervised. It's all supervised learning. The brain doesn't have this luxury. There is no supervisor in the brain telling, oh, wait, no, no, this grid cell response is actually wrong. No, yeah. this is not. So, so sure, great, if you have you have the superpower of, of uh, a supervisor who knows everything, like God is training you to be a world champion, fabulous. But that's just not the luxury that the red brain has. So mm. this is my whole point about constraints. Yeah. So. We must satisfy the pertinent constraints. And that's the discussion we have to have between the theatricians and the biologists. Is not like, oh, let me overwhelm you with my mathematosis. No, mm. it's about what are the specific constraints that I'm satisfying that you have identified as experimentalists and what are the protestable predictions I'm giving back to you. Mm. Mm. This is a dialogue that we need to establish, and that's not happening. But just yeah. people make a lot of noise uh, about how fantastic this all is, and they can deliver uh, even more cat videos to your doorstep with deep learning, and it's deeply uninteresting. I think that's a good point to go back into your talk because actually you were identifying some constraints because this whole question around uh, how does the, the rat brain actually generate these different uh, elements of a system that can map space, and there's this interesting question as to whether, for instance, they really have a full 3D map, even Mm. if they live in a 3D world. And you began by talking about the problem of just encoding head direction when you're moving on on something that's not just a flat plane. Mm. And there I think you were also arguing that that this isn't a system that can represent orientation sort of in, in a universal way. It's very much grounded in the ecology of the rat and the kind of life that it has. Yes, well, we're still still collecting data on this. It's early days, but certainly um, 
what we're seeing in the in the grid cells and the hydration cells are, are sort of hints that the system is um, preferring to just make a, a, a flat map of local space. And that makes a lot of sense from a, an evolutionary perspective because because um, supporting a brain is enormously expensive in terms of energy. And to make a 3D model of the world, to make a full 3D model of the world, you need vastly more neural resources than to just make a, a, a flat model of the world. Um, of course, a flat model has a lot of limitations, and, and I did talk about some of those. You know, you can only get so far with a flat map when, when you're on a hilly surface. It would um, be not very good for planning optimal routes across hilly terrain, for example. Uh, but if you take a, a flat map and then inject a little bit of three-dimensional information into it, then you might have something that works pretty well for all practical purposes. And that's really what the, the problem that the rat has to solve, is how to practically get by in the world with the minimal expenditure of energy. So yeah, I think you, you, um, you distinguish different ways in which you could think about three dimensions. You could say, well, I'm interested in surface structure, so if it's undulations, I care about whether I'm going up and down. And then you talked about if I'm in the ocean or in the air, I'm interested maybe where I'm in a 3D volume, which would then, as you say, require more more space to encode uh, all of all of the information about that volume. And then you talked about some mixture models, and I think where you're going in your work is towards more of a mixture model. Is that right? Yes, I think so. So we we call it a, a multi-planar model. I don't know if that's the best word for it, but the the intuition is that um, the map of three-dimensional space, at least, for, I mean, I should qualify it and say that this is, we're studying surface-dwelling animals like rats and mice and, and probably humans. Um, so the the map of a complex three-dimensionally um, topologically, you know, undulating world is a lot of, um, we think of it as like mosaic fragments, each local one of which is two-dimensional, but which are related to each other with some three-dimensional structure. And... Um, we you know, are in the process of collecting data about how that might work and, for example, how the head direction system could cope with a, with a um, system like that and how it would avoid accumulating errors and so on. Uh, the acid test is really going to be uh, what happens when we get rats to move through vo a volumetric space and we've started these experiments in my laboratory at the moment. We're training rats to, to move through a lattice that's conceptually like moving through the branches of trees in a forest or something like that, so that where the rat really can move in uh, all three dimensions, um, and then we'll have to see what the, mm -hmm. the grid cells particularly do in that situation. Right. So, but then, um, if we now look at this situation from this also this perspective of modularity, in some sense you can also say that that head direction cells and grid cells have also great redundancy, right? Because in some sense the grid cell gives you a spatial representation of the temporal signal you get from your head direction cells. It's the velocity vector that is driving the grid cells, right? Yes. So there's really redundancy there. So w would you find cells that are, let's say, partially head direction cell and partially grid cell? Would you have mixtures? Well, it's certainly the case that um, that there are so-called conjunctive cells, like grid cells that, um, that only produce their grids when the rat's facing in a, in a particular direction. Um, so... I don't know if that was that was kind of cell you meant, but um, but they they certainly have, have been well reported. Um, but the other interesting thing is that if you um, d if you deprive ordinary you know multi-directional grid cells of their place cell input, um, then what's left seems to be a head direction signal. So this is this is work from the Moser lab where they inactivated the hippocampus, and and so it looks like the head direction signal. Maybe a sort of a fundamental input to grid cells, and that helps the grids to, to become oriented. But I, 
I'm not sure that you could function only with well-oriented grid cells in the absence of hydration cells, because of course there's the um, sixfold, you know, redundancy or, or replication, mm -hmm. or ambiguity, I suppose is the word. Um, you wouldn't know which of the six directions you were moving in necessarily if you didn't have a proper hydration cell. But now your reference model for the head direction cells to now jump to three-dimensional space is the, 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 the ring attractor, right? So basically you have a, a bunch of neurons that are coupled together in a, in a ring. Every neuron is then encoding a heading direction and activity is just moving through this ring, exploiting the fact that heading directions also continuously change. Um, so, and then the question is, okay, how could I now exploit such a ring attractor that, that works great in a planar space for a three-dimensional space. Mm. So your idea then is that this, the, the ring becomes a sphere, so I'm covering now also all elevation values, or, or do you have another model in mind? Well, well, if, um, if the brain tries to form a, a fully volumetric 3D map, then I think you would want something, by, by extension from what we know in two dimensions, I think you would want um, a fully three-dimensional compass, which is to say a spherical attractor. Um, which also, un unlike in two dimensions, also has to take into account the um, the, the, the orientation of the, the body of the animal, because of course in three dimensions it could spin around, it can roll around the long axis of its body. So theoretically speaking, I think that's what one would need. Now we've not tried to model a spherical attractor, um, but it seems to me that it would be vastly more complicated than a ring attractor mm -hmm. because of the, the problems that I talked about with things like the non-commutativity of rotations mm -hmm. um, and all of these things, the the, um, the problem of extracting azimuth from your rotations when the animal is not actually in a horizontal plane and all of these things that make it very complicated. So if we're thinking that this is a system that's trying to be economical, a more economical solution would be to just stick with your ring attractor and just to have it work on whatever plane you happen to be on, regardless of its orientation. Mm -hmm. Um, and then f figure out a way to map that signal back onto the horizontal. And I, I, I suspect that's what's happening with the, the mm -hmm. rat iteration. So, but, but an alternative might be that I just take my cardinal axis of movement and have single rings for those, and maybe I take two populations that are tuned to these cardinal axis of movement and I have a little offset between them, and then via interpolation I could actually extract all my possible heading directions in three dimensions. So w w why did you not consider this more, let's say, simplified uh, version? Yeah, it's a possibility too. You mean like to have three orthogonal mm -hmm. ring attractors? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that yeah. would be a possibility. And um, Cynthia Moss has, has um, shown that that would um, mm -hmm. account quite well to, to make a, um, a three-dimensional uh, compass signal. That, I, I think that's entirely possible. It doesn't, it doesn't fully solve the problem because um, if you're on a plane that's, that's not orthogonal to um, any of those three... Um, ring attractors, then you need to kind of map the yaw rotation that you're making onto one of those. So you've still got a transformation uh -huh. that's modulated by the, the angle between the surface that you're on and the, uh -huh. the three now uh, ring attractors. So it's still not an entirely simple problem. On the other hand, the brain is quite good at solving uh -huh. uh, non-simple problems. So sure. I wouldn't rule it uh -huh. out at all. I, I but not intuition would be that, that we, so let's say, whether it's, 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 it's just a set of rings or a sphere, Let's say we have now a 3D heading direction system, and then the intuition would be, okay, if these guys now drive my grid cells, I would have 3D grid cells, right? This is yes. roughly the idea. Yes. And, but this is not exactly what you found, right? You, you didn't literally find grid cells that are tuned in 3D. 
It was a bit more complicated than that. It's a bit more complicated than that, but we haven't done the acid tests. So that's the experiment I mentioned a moment ago mm. where, where the, the animal really can move freely in all three dimensions. So the experiments that we've done with grid cells in three dimensions have been with the animal on a surface that extends into the vertical dimension. And we, we don't know um, how that surface is constraining the signal and how it's you know, producing a signal that might not be there if the, if the rat was really able to move freely. So what we see is that on a vertical surface, the pattern depends on the orientation of the animal's body. So if the animal is oriented horizontally, as it is on the pegboard where it's standing on pegs that stick out of a wall. So it's, it's oriented horizontally, but it's moving up and down as well as um, in, in horizontal horizontal dimension. There we see that the grid cells don't seem to map out distances in the vertical dimension. So they're not, in that case, mapping out distances in the direction orthogonal to the plane of the body of the animal. If, on the other hand, the plane of the body of the animal is parallel to the wall, so the rat's actually walking around on the wall and um, climbing around on chicken wire, <laughs> now we see something that looks more like a grid. So it looks like there's some attempt by the system to perform odometry. So the relationship of the animal to the surface is really important, at least in, in these particular environments. Now, whether that generalizes to a fully volumetric environment, we don't know. So we, we but there was something know. interesting about the the, the the pegboard result. So you have this, this wall with these little sticks sticking out, and the animal can make horizontal trajectories, essentially, across this wall. And... Essentially, what you what you would sort of see, see there is sort of a strip-like organization of the grid cell response, mm. right? Yeah. So, does it imply that in that case the 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 middle entorhinal cortex is sort of is is cutting through the three-dimensional uh, plane a bunch of horizontal planes and saying, okay, actually this is like a number of alleys that I'm running through. And, and I just ignore then this third dimension part of it. I just map out every local horizontal stretch. Yes, I, I think that's um, that's one interpretation. That, that seems to be the likeliest interpretation. Mm. Um, as to what it is about the dimension that the grid cell is not mapping out, so in the vertical dimension, um, I don't know, because we haven't done all the various control experiments, I don't know whether... Um, the system just doesn't like to do odometry that's not in the direction that the rat's running, which is a possibility, um, or if it's something specific to the direction that's orthogonal to the plane of the animal. So we've, you know, various experiments we need to do to distinguish between those possibilities. So, you know, it may turn out the grid cells, they really only are interested in counting footsteps in the direction that the animal's running, or something quite simple, mm. um, modulated, of course, by running direction. Um, but when, if the rat were to run sideways, we might also see that grid cell odometry fails. So we, you know, we haven't tried that yet, nor but backwards. I, I think <laughs> it, we're going back to your suggestion that the grid cells are maybe being driven by the head direction cells. Um, these results maybe make sense in the light of the study that you told us about where a rat is climbing, I think, on chicken wire around a sort of square pillar. And you're looking at the... Uh, head direction cells uh, on when the rat is on either side of the pillar and how those change as it moves around the pillar. Mm. And you were saying that uh, it was changing in, uh, it wasn't changing in a way consistent with having uh, a full 3D compass and it wasn't changing in a way consistent with having an entirely local compass. It was something that you called, I think, 
It was either locally global or globally <laughs> local. Yes. Uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Well, so so what we found, um, which is very similar to um, results from Jeff Talby um, a few years ago, um, but but what we've done is is show that this is an, an active modulation process rather than a passive one. So um, so what Talby's group showed is that if a rat walks from a horizontal surface to a vertical surface, then the head direction cells essentially remain unchanged. So as the animal walks towards the wall, the head direction cell that's active while it's on the floor will continue to be active as the rat walks up onto the wall and is now facing upwards. And then when the rat does your rotations on the wall, um, then the activity moves around the ring of head direction cells in the usual way. So what we um, have done is take that experiment a step further and shown that when the animal moves from one vertical surface to another differently oriented vertical surface, then the head direction cells actively rotate their signal by 90 degrees as the rat goes around a 90 degree corner. Um, so that the so that the um, the representation is still essentially um, related to the representation that would be on the horizontal surface, but it's been updated by a movement that wasn't a yaw rotation. So in other words, non-yaw rotations around the vertical axis can update the head direction signal when the rat's not on a horizontal surface. And the, the consequence of that is that when the rat goes back down onto a horizontal surface, then the signal has been appropriately updated such that it's consistent and, and still pointing the correct way. So, so what we have is a very simple rule, basically, for updating the head direction signal as the rat goes around vertical corners. So what the rat really cares about is uh, knowing where it is in the horizontal plane. Is that right? I, I would say that's a fair interpretation. That's, that's yeah. our, certainly our working hypothesis. That, and, that's the main but thing. if that then is the signal driving the grid cells, then does that perhaps explain some of the grid cell results? Because now the head direction cells don't care so much about where you are vertically, but they care a lot about where you are horizontally. So inevitably, the grid cells are going to be coding much more strongly for the horizontal uh, dimensions. Well, so the, the head direction cells, I, I'm not sure we could say that they don't care about the vertical encoding because, the, in fact, the specificity of the signal on the vertical wall is just as good as it is on the horizontal. So, Well, um, it's not, maybe it's not vertical versus horizontal, but it's, it's, it's something about the surface that you're on, but then how that surface is relative to the true horizontal, which mm -hmm. you know through gravity. So it's th those are the things that the, the head cells care about, is that right? Well, I th yes, I think that ultimately the consistency that the system is trying to maintain is, um, is, an, is consistency in how they encode azimuth. Yeah. So in other words, horizontal direction, compass direction, essentially. So I, so I, I think that these rules about um, updating the signal for, for um, rotations around the vertical axis, I think the function of those rules is to maintain horizontal consistency. Now, how that maps to the, what the grid cells are doing it's not quite so clear because the head direction signal is um, very much the same on the vertical wall as it is on the horizontal floor. But the grid cell signal seems to be quite different. So the scale is expanded. The um, space between the fields is much, relatively much larger than it uh, should be. And something um, has changed about the, the oscillatory activity, the, the theta rhythm and so on. Something is different about how the grid cells are computing distances on the wall, and yet the head, head direction cells are just doing what they should do. 
So there's a slight dissociation there, which we. But this is not interesting, Tony's point, because I think the, the point you're making is that if I'm now on this vertical wall, I'm still mapping my head direction cell back to a horizontal plane. So now I get also sort of rounding errors and I get imprecisions in that mapping because my head direction cell is still believing we're moving around on this horizontal plane, but actually it's a vertical plane. Right, so that means if, if this is now the key driving input to my grid cells, this also will get distorted. And that might lead to the sort of a collapse or a, a remapping of the, of the grid cell response. I think this is what um. you had in mind, Tony, roughly. Um. Well, that wasn't quite my idea, but uh, um, uh, my thought was that if you had a perfect 3D compass, the grid cells might automatically develop a nice volumetric mm. mapping. But, uh, you know, I think, I don't know how we would test okay, that. Okay, it's the other extreme then, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, for instance, Kate, like, you, you showed this really beautiful experiment where you had these animals crawling around, uh, around this, this cube on the chicken wire, and then what you showed is that as the animal turns the corner in this in these two vertical planes, goes from one vertical plane to the other vertical plane, there's a very rapid shift of the head, heading direction response with 90 degrees. So you would expect that if you then look in that condition to the grid cells, that there should be some massive change in, in the response of the grid cells. Well, we might predict that the all, all other things being equal, that the, that the grid pattern on the... Um, the two vertical walls would be 90-degree rotations mm -hmm. of each other. Um, but there are all sorts of qualifications to that. One is that, as I've mentioned, the, the pattern on the grid cell uh, of the grid cells on the vertical wall is so different that it's not even clear that it's a hexagonal close-packed array. So um, we don't even know that we could determine what the orientation was of the grids. The other thing is that we've shown um, that the that the grid cells are somewhat sensitive to context information. And of course, the, um, the east wall and the south wall could, to the system, seem like different contexts. So maybe the grid cells would just do something entirely different. So um, it's a little difficult to predict what we would see. And I'm not sure how easy it would be to interpret what we saw. But now the, so in some, right now, we're, we're really analyzing this, the three-dimensional representation of space, or the representation of three-dimensional space. Um, from the, the the heading direction system perspective. So the heading direction response is again very much predicated on what your vestibular system will tell you. Yes. So it's maybe this inability to really map out three-dimensional space accurately in, in the rodent dependent on just getting uh, signals that are, that are less reliable or more noisy or less precise in the vertical plane as opposed to the horizontal plane. So it's just a matter of the, the, the sensory front end, the sensory apparatus, not providing you with the information, actually having an accurate head direction response in the third dimension. Well, the, the vestibular system is pretty good at providing information. So, you know, it's, it's sensitive to, to angular and linear information in the various different directions. But the, um, the hypothesis that we're toying with at the moment is that the, the vestibular signals that are feeding into the grid cell system that, that normally work on the horizontal plane, they, they comprise all of the semicircular canal information, so all of the, the rotational information, together with linear information from the otolith or organ. Um, so our kind of working hypothesis is that on the vertical surface, now the otolith organ, which is sensitive to... Um, acceleration in the horizontal plane and normally has the gravity vector um, orthogonal to that um, is is now in a different state of alignment and that um, perhaps the system copes with that and s 
rather than developing a whole new way of processing the signal, just says, let's just do without the otolith signal. Mm -hmm. let's, you know, so um, we'll just work with the semicircular canals and let's forget the whole uh, linear acceleration thing. So um, so that may be why the grids are expanded on the wall, mm -hmm. because they're missing one of their vestibular Right, inputs. it would give so quite a bias, right? Because if we now go to, the, to these annoying bats that show, mm -hmm. to, that show actually a three-dimensional representation in their, in their play cell system and... Um, is there? Is there? Um, do they have an oscillate type um, canal also running in the orthogonal axis and the vertical axis? Is is that what helps them to develop the three dimensional representation? I, I think, um, as far as I know, the vestibular system is pretty similar. Okay. Um, um, and we don't fully know the details about their three dimensional nature of their representation. So, uh, Nakamulanovsky and his group have done some really beautiful work showing that. Place cells seem to form place fields that pack a volume, as as you would predict for for a three dimensional map. The head direction cells um, are sensitive to to um, all three of the directions, but not equally. So there are many more azimuth sensitive cells than there are cells sensitive to uh, pitch, um, or s and there are very few cells sensitive to roll. There are a, a small handful that are sensitive to combinations of all three of those angles. So they are true 3D compass cells, but there are very few of them. So I don't think that even the bat, which which moves a lot through three-dimensional space, really has a, a true volumetric compass that's, that works evenly mm. in all three of the dimensions. I think it's still biased towards encoding the, the horizontal plane. The story for grid cells and bats, we're, we're waiting with bated breath to see what happens there. And I think that'll, that'll um, raise some very interesting questions. I'm mm. looking forward to those data coming in. But then the, if, if we would take a rat and we sort of glue it to a, to a drone and we have to let the rat fly around in the lab to get its food, would you predict that it would develop three-dimensionally tuned play cells as the, the bat? So you're asking a question about experience, mm -hmm. and, and is experience enough to create Right, a because apparently the periphery so is, is, as far as we know, rather comparable. Yes, yes. So I, I guess the answer um, would have to be I don't know, <laughs> because no, we don't we want know. The prediction. The, we want the prediction. Well, so we have been raising rats in um, a fairly three-dimensional environment so as to have subjects that are as 3D competent as we possibly can. So they spend all of their time climbing through... Uh, climbing frames and up and down things, and, and, and they're pretty um, competent. They don't fly, and we've not put them on a, on a drone, but um, in all other respects, they're, they're pretty good at this volumetric um, navigation. Um, but we don't see any difference in the encoding of, of their neurons. So, so if I had to guess, I would say that I don't think experience is going to create a 3D map if there isn't one there already. But now we know that, that maybe in, in, in the rats that, that you're... That you're um, um, then allowing to develop in a three-dimensional space in the lab, they could still get away with just slicing it up in, in many horizontal planes in which they operate, no? Right, because they because they move around on surfaces. Exactly. They could, so yes. If so I'm, if I glue the rat to another bat or to a drone, right. I have linear motion, but then really in three-dimensional space. Yeah, right? uh, yeah so. I, I don't know. I think we'd, mm. have, we'd have to do it. I mean, there are... You know, hand-waving arguments for why they might be able to mm -hmm. do that. One of them being that um, that we all evolved from fully 3D competent animals, so fish, which you know move around in a, in a volumetric space, and um, it's quite possible that all of this evolved eons ago, and that it's become somewhat vestigial, or at least we don't use it. That us, you know, surface-dwelling animals like like us and like um, rats and mice and things don't use it, but it's still there. Mm -hmm. So that, that's that's possible. 
Um, in support of that, the, there's research on astronauts or observations on astronauts, not, not formal studies as far as I know, but observations of astronauts find that in the first few days of weightlessness, they, they tend to try and form a, a, a flat map, if you like, where they um, reference their, their knowledge of the layout of the environment to um, a notional floor. So they define a nearby surface as the floor and then the surface opposite it as the ceiling. And then if they drift across that space in their weightlessness and find themselves too close to the ceiling, then they suddenly reorient their sense of direction and now the ceiling becomes the floor. So that, that suggests to me that, that they didn't start out with a three-dimensional map because why would you have this reorientation if, if, if you were really quite happy floating around in a space and just able to encode X, Y and Z with equal facility? On the other hand, this disorientation abates over time, as far as I know. So it's possible that they do develop some competency. Whether it's a, a kind of a kludge, or, you know, it's a, just a, a kind of a hack, not really um, a fully three-dimensional map, but one that functions like one, I think we'd have to do some, probably some electrophysiology on them, and I'm not mm. sure if we'd be allowed to. So, but yeah, it's an, it's an open question. It's an interesting question, I think, whether we have the capacity to do that, if, even if we don't use it. One thing I think is quite potentially interesting is when we move to virtual reality and we become more competent in navigating virtual environments where we, we don't have the same constraints, could we engage a fully three-dimensional map and could we even create a four-dimensional one or, or more, you know, higher-dimensional representations? And that would, I think would be interesting to play around with. Are we, are we being dis taken in too much by this concept of a map? Because... Yeah, if I have a good map, I have a compass, uh, I can count steps, I can know where I'm in space. But now, uh, if, I, if I'm in the wrong place, if I'm not where I'm on my map, I can get lost. But usually there are ways of recovering from that. For instance, uh, I can look and see where some tall building is. Or mm. if I'm you know, a bird, I can look at the constellation of the stars or where the sun is in the sky. Or I can tell from the direction the wind is blowing. You know, if I'm a seal, maybe it's water currents, you know, thermal gradients. Mm. Uh, gravity, of course, is always there as a cue. Mm. So these systems give us cues that will help us localize ourselves or at least get something like a homing vector, even when the, uh, the hippocampal map fails. So maybe th is it possible the hippocampal map is, is just part of this bigger navigation system? And it's one of the things that are constraining our choices about going the world but we're not tied to it in such a strong way. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think there are, you know, there's quite a lot of research to suggest that there are um, multiple spatial systems um, and what we've been calling map-based navigation, which really refers to using constellations of cues to extract distance and direction metrics for, for navigation. And I think that's only one of um, several different strategies, and you've mentioned some. So beacon navigation, for example, where you just head towards the, the nearest tall building or whatever it was. You may not necessarily know where you are, but you can see where you need to get to, and so you just head towards yeah. it. Um, or remembering sequences and left-right turns that you have to make. Um, I think a lot of our navigation is this stimulus-based um, route based navigation, where we're not really thinking about where we are within the global scheme of things and not really computing directions, but remembering patterns of behaviour anchored to landmarks. You know, when I go to work in the morning, I drive to the corner and I turn left. I don't think about the overall direction I'm going. I just know my route, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the brain has multiple systems. And I think 
um, it's, it's possible to exploit that for various purposes. For example, I think it's something that robotics could usefully do is, is to have these parallel multiple systems that, um, that interact. And one of the things that's emerged from animal studies is that certainly the root-based and the map-based systems seem to operate almost, I mean, not, not in opposition, but in an either-or fashion. So right. you, you tend to use one or the other, you switch between them. But wouldn't they be um, in some some of these other mechanisms could be involved in stitching together these sort of globally local hippocampal maps? Because you know you, what I got from your talk is that you know if I'm exploring on a piece of flat ground, I have a you know a map for this. But then if I decide to run up this tree, I'm into another map. Uh, but I need then to know how these maps fit together in sort of bigger space, and it, it seems less likely that I have a. a a global map, maybe at a coarser scale, but maybe I'm using other sets of cues to try and integrate between these local patches. Yeah, I think I think there are there's, there's probably more than one way of creating a um, a larger scale patchwork map as well. And I think um, you've identified one, so it is quite possible that that there could be these uh, root based um, ways of stitching together your behaviour, if you like. Um, as for stitching together the actual fragments of the map to make a larger map, I think there you would want a brain system that had some um, notion about di about direction because ultimately, um, even if you're using a coarse, more topological map where you, you've not got fine-grained distance information, you still need some general idea of which direction to go. And so I um, think it's more likely that it would be some brain system that's that's interacting with the head direction system. So we, th we think that root-based navigation uh, depends on the striatum, which is involved in controlling behaviour in response to stimuli that are in the environment. But I think um, a more spatial, a more globally spatial system more, more connected with the compass system would be likely for the larger scale map. And we've been looking quite a lot at retrospinal cortex and um, other cortical regions which uh, talk to the hippocampal system, but they also talk to the head direction system and also quite a lot to um, other sensory systems. Seems to be quite a way point for many converging information streams. Well, what about humans? Because I know some that have no sense of direction. Mm. I mean, I don't know about myself, but yeah. Members of my family, for instance, yeah. they will have no idea which direction there's, they should go in. There's a lot of interesting research on, on humans. It's, it's quite an enormous literature. Um, and people vary a lot in their spatial capabilities. And um, one person who's been doing some interesting work on this is Eleanor Maguire, who has um, been looking recently, she's, she's done a lot of work over many years looking at, at, at different aspects of navigation, but recently she's been looking at how people encode landmarks and use them in navigation. And she's found that people vary in their ability to decide how permanent a landmark is, which is a, a, an odd thing to have doubts about, but apparently people vary along this, this continuum. And she finds that people who are not very good at, at specifying how permanent landmarks are are also not very good at navigating. They perform quite poorly in tests. And interestingly, the brain structure that lights up when people are... Um, deciding about permanence of landmarks is retrospinal cortex. Now that's a brain structure that my lab has been interested in recently because it's um, very interested in landmarks and it has a lot of head direction cells. And we think that it may be doing the job of processing landmarks and deciding to what extent they're useful to the head direction system and then attaching them or not attaching them to the head direction signal. So that this is work that's 
just beginning, but I think we're slowly starting to build up this picture that uh, it's not really all about the hippocampus. The hippocampus is, is um, the core of a much bigger system. Yeah, that's also what you what you argued uh, towards the end, right? Because, okay, so in some sense, you, you I guess you were hoping to find a clean, a clean three-dimensional tuning of, let's say, the grid cells. Um, although we didn't really talk too much about the place cells in this context, but in some, it doesn't come out so clean, right? And then you propose that maybe these are like the grid cells could be could be thought of as cylinders that cut through in sort of a uniform way the the third dimension. Mm. But on the other hand, the physiology was maybe not always that clean with respect to the then still a grid like structuring of the response. Because I remember on some of the walls you get a huge clustering of the response in one corner or, or the other corner. Right. Right. Yeah. And then the, the the point you made is that the the modulation of this response is, is strongly dependent on gravity and the orientation of the body. Right. So, the, so how does this now come in to to the modulation of the of of this grid cell response that you recorded? Well, the the hypothesis and it's really only a hypothesis. We don't have any data on 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 the um, role of gravity, but the hypothesis is that the the grid cell system wants to create a um, a grid and that the grid is essentially a flat thing and it needs to decide what um, surface is it going to lay its grid on and normally in, in a normal environment where we're just walking around on the floor then it uses the floor and of course when we record rats in the laboratory normally they're walking around on the floor and we see grids on the floor but it's when we start to have rats walking around on things that aren't the floor that we start to see that this um, slight modulation of what the grid cells are doing. And the, the simplest explanation for the patterns we see is that the grid cell system sometimes chooses the wall as its reference plane, and it's trying to produce a grid on the wall. Um, and sometimes it uses the floor, even if the rat's walking around on a wall, if the rat is actually oriented horizontally and, and, and the floor is beneath it and it can see it. So, um, so the pattern that we see on the pegboard with the stripes we think that's happening because the grid cell system has decided to use the floor as its reference plane, and not the wall, even though the, the rat's climbing on the wall. Um, that that kind of simple model has to be qualified because of this finding that when the rat is walking around on the wall, we don't we, we don't see these neat grids. Possibly they're neat grids if we could have a, a huge wall and have the rat walk mm-hmm. around on it. And I'm trying to persuade my PhD student Julio to um, to do that experiment, but it would be a, a very difficult one. Okay. So then, the so, so the grid cells, um, the story is not finished on, with respect to this tuning in the third dimension. However, we we will, I think there's this strong conviction by everybody with everything in the field that they do represent a metric, right? They really contribute to having a, a metric representation in this case of, of of distance. But then, and some of the heuristic is often like, well, you know, grid cells give you this 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 great representation of space. And uh, with those, we can build play cells. So that's fantastic. This was, a bit, this was the original intuition. Mm. And then it came out that also if you look at development, and it actually not occurs in that order. Mm. It's much more that, that play cells help you to structure grid cells. So doesn't so that raises a question about also the, the directionality of the information processing in this system. So you could also argue, look, if you take the cortical sheet... And, you know, you, then at one end, we will have this entorhinal cortex running across it, and then from there hangs our hippocampus. So we have now this interface between hippocampus and cortex through entorhinal cortex where we have this, this, this metric. But it could also actually be a metric that helps cortex to read out what the hell's going on in the hippocampus. Mm. 
Is that an option you would consider? Yes. Yeah, I, th I think the... Um, I think the system is unlikely to have a, a directionality. I, th I think the, um, the, the system is very bi-directional, very highly interconnected, in fact. Um, the only exception to that really is, is this relatively one-way flow of information through the hippocampus itself. Uh, but even then, there are multiple shortcuts. So um, information coming from entorhinal cortex to um, the dentate gyrus also takes a shortcut to CA3 and information going to CA3 also takes a shortcut to CA1 and so on. Um, but then the, the output co goes back to the entorhinal cortex and then it goes back out to cortex. Um, so I agree that I, I think that the, the information flow goes both ways. I think all the structures depend on each other to some mm. extent. So, um, so I think that the, the play cells, they're getting lots of information other than the grid cell input. In fact, you could knock out the grid cell signal and the place cells still produce quite nice fields, so they're quite capable of, of forming place fields. Um, but I think what we will find if we do the relevant experiments is that in that situation, um, there's not really metric information. So the animal, for example, can't um, path integrate. And in fact, there's some um, work from um, Marseille that sort of shows that if you if you lesion into rhinal cortex, then animals lose the ability to calculate distances properly. So um, I think that right now I would probably favour a model in which the the place cells um, form a, a sort of a what I think of as almost like a pixel map of the environment. So they could they sort of respond to the constellation of sensory cues that are present at each particular point in space, um, together with a grid cell input, but they don't have to have the grid cell input. Um, and the grid cells, in turn, use the place cells to know how to attach their grids to a given environment. And they do need the place cells. So if you knock out the place cells, the grids become very unhappy. Um, and so the function of the grid cells is to help the place cells um, appropriately position their fields, for example, in the middle of a large open field where you're not near any boundaries and you've not got a lot of other information and um, so on. Or if you close your eyes and walk around in the dark or something. So the grid cells um, are basically providing metric information that can substitute for the sensory cues to the place cells if the sensory cues mm -hmm. drop out for some reason. So yes, I think it's very bidirectional. I think there's a lot of mutual dependency and uh, you know the brain um, you know, is, is highly interconnected and, and systems are all helping each other all the time, I think. But then the, the grid cell is, is the system that now can bidirectly interact between the two is driven by a velocity signal. This velocity signal also comes through quite a cascade of processing stages, including the thalamus. So this might suggest that there are other systems than, than your vestibular system that might grab hold of this of driving this velocity signal. Mm. So it means I could actually start to distort this metric, or I could even impose a completely different kind of metric. Yes. Do you do you do you consider that option? Yes. Yeah. So um, so a lot of very elegant work has been done using virtual reality to independently manipulate various aspects of this. Um, of, the, of the signals that the brain could be using to extract velocity. Um, so that includes things like motor cues, uh, so how, you know, how many footsteps and how quickly are they being produced, um, how quickly is the optic flow signal moving past the eyes, and, and so on. So there are other cues than just the vestibular signal. And so people have played around with um, independently varying these to mm -hmm. see what happens. And the, I think the story that's emerging is a little bit complex. One of the things that is quite striking to me is that nobody has yet shown um, a head direction signal in virtual reality. So I think 
the head direction signal is is possibly quite dependent on the vestibular signal. Of course, the vestibular signal is the thing that's missing in virtual reality. Exactly. Um, usually. Right. Uh, at least that's true for mm. animals where the head is fixed. Mm -hmm. if, if there are some variants of virtual reality, for example, David Tank's group has um, has a virtual reality set up where the animals can rotate, but they can't move in a in linear space. Mm. So they're they're running on a ball and they can freely rotate. So they can get the angular component um, of the vestibular signal, and and there there are head direction um, cells, and indeed they see grid cells and place cells, but the grids are are quite expanded, um, which I think is interesting because. Um, s slightly analogously to the findings that we have on the wall, the thing that's missing in that apparatus is a linear acceleration signal from the vestibular system. And that was one of the things that made us start thinking maybe that's what's wrong with our grid cells on, on the wall is the absence of the signal. Mm. So I think the vestibular system is not the, not the only velocity signal. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, not necessarily even the most important velocity signal, but I think it normally is there and it normally is, is quite supportive to, mm. to the system. It's, it's a little bit worrying that you're not getting head direction cells given what we've talked about uh, in these virtual reality environments where you know, animals are, are running on balls and things, because that's uh, one way in which the, the field has moved quite a lot just in the last decade. You have an animal head fixed, so you can do a lot of detailed recording, mm. but you've thrown away um, a, perhaps quite a significant amount of the ethological relevance to what those actual recordings might mean. Yeah. And it, it's, it struck me as well, listening to your talk today, that you're actually using uh, very enriched environments but uh, and the system that you're, you're looking at is then perhaps a bit closer to the, the you know the natural animal in its free state than some of these other environments that um, people have been using to look at the hippocampal system before. And you also you know you noted that when we went from testing animals in small boxes to testing animals in slightly bigger boxes, two meters, which mm. isn't huge, well, then we discovered grid cells. Mm. So I'm just wondering. You know, what else are we going to discover mm. when we when we really take seriously the lifestyle of the animal? Yeah. You know, sort of you know, these animals live in tunnels a lot, so yeah. you know they 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 move around nocturnally most of their time, and we're testing them under lighted conditions. Yeah. Are yeah. we missing other important things? I think I think that's a really really important point, and I I totally agree that um, that the conditions that that we're recording in at the moment are not very ethologically um, valid. And there are there are pluses and minuses to that. So one of the, the things that you do, of course, is to reduce the complexity, and, and that enables you to look at factors in isolation. But, of course, what you lose is um, is the real-world relevance. So, so ultimately, you have to start putting all of this stuff back together again. And I think one of the big outstanding questions for me is, is what do grid-in-place cells do in a normal, cluttered environment like a burrow system or you know a field with trees and rocks and things like that um and my my belief which we've not tested yet but um it'd be relatively easy to test is is that um a day in the life of a grid cell uh, wouldn't result in a nice um hexagonal close packed array of firing fields i think if you just recorded a grid cell for a week or two in a rat you'd find it almost never produced a hexagonal close packed array of firing fields most of the time it would produce blobs um scattered at what looked like random places around the environment because of course the rat is you know walking rats they they have these very stereotyped kind of behaviors in familiar territory where they have these little rat runs you know they little paths yeah. that they like to follow and so on um they don't tend to forage in an even way across the surface of, of the environment so, 
So I think when we start to think about what are these cells actually doing for the animal, we need to bear that in mind that we're, we're very captivated by the regularity of the pattern that we're able to elicit, but the regularity of the pattern may not be the thing that the brain really cares about with grid cells. It may be something else. Um, it may, maybe, for example, that the function of a grid cell is just to separate out um, pieces of the environment so that they, they don't, so that the representations of them don't kind of bleed into each other, right? you know, or, or something like that, that. That's kind of a, a bit different from how we've been thinking. So, we really don't know what they're for yet, and so I think your ethological point is extremely valid. So they might as well be decorrelating spatial representations, given that they have only, let's say, intermediate resp interleaved responses to to space. Possibly, hmm? possibly. I think it's a, a hypothesis worth considering. Right. Yeah. So, um, Kate, um, I mean, you have attacked this really complicated problem of, of you know, rats in space. And uh, you're going to be busy with that for, for a little while. You also have been very close, if you want, to the discovery of, of grid cells. You've been exposed to all this work around spatial cognition, place cells. Um, so, in that sense, you really represent a very specific tradition in neuroscience, a systems neuroscience, trying also to link behavior to the neural substrate. So if we now would like to follow in, that, in your tradition, what would be uh, Kate's law that we have to write on the wall and, and read every morning when we wake up? <laughs> Kate's law. Ooh. Um, okay, you've caught me on the back foot there. I would, I'd have to go away. <laughs> I mean, I can... I can I've, you mean you mean a law as in um, a law about the functioning of the brain, or no, a law uh, that we have to adhere to in, in terms of studying and understanding the brain? It's kind of um, your, your advice to your new grad student. Mm -hmm. um, I th I think. Look at me as a new grad student. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, one law is the brain is very complicated. Um, the other the other thing is the brain is very simple. I, I think <laughs> I think mm. the brain. Um, the the, the brain. <laughs> You know, the, the, the brain is, is, is made of these very slowly computing um, blobs of jelly. And I think wherever possible, it's trying to optimise the problems it's trying to solve so as to save itself as much work as possible. And I think we have to remember that, you know, particularly when we're designing artificial intelligent machines and things like that, we have to think uh, to what extent um, are the systems biologically realistic and to what extent should they be? Because biology really is, is just trying to keep the animal alive and it may not be trying to do it in the most elegant way so much as the, the way that works for the environment of the animal at the time. So mm. I guess that would be it. Okay. So then um, Tony actually likes uh, trains a lot. And he also likes to take a train often from, from Sheffield to, to London. And five years from now, I'll buy him a train ticket to go to London, visit you. And, <laughs> and he will visit your lab and he will come with a piece of paper that says, okay, Kate, five years ago, you made this prediction. And today we want to know whether it was verified or not or rejected. So What's the, what's the most important prediction you would like to make today in this time window of five years that you really want to see tested in, in that time frame? Um, well, several predictions. I mean, five years is not very long, so I should hedge my bets. Tony <laughs> um, so. can't wait that long, Kate, sorry. Uh, important predictions. So, so one thing I think is... I really like this idea that the vestibulocerebellum um, provides a, um, a signal that modulates the updating of the head direction signal in three dimensions and allows us to essentially to relate all of our frames of reference. So I think that the, the function of the cerebellum may well be thought of as, um, as a way of transforming between reference frames. 
and that um, it uses the gravity signal and the other vestibular signals to do that. So, so that's something that um, I'd, I would like to have at least started on in five years, and we're just thinking about how we might do that. Uh, second thing, grid cells. I would like to, to have found out by then whether grid cells form a hexagonal close-packed lattice in three dimensions, and I'm honestly agnostic about that. I've been selling this multiplanar idea, but I you know, have an open mind about whether that's really true. Um, and then the third thing is that uh, we're very interested in the retrospinial cortex. I think it's a really interesting and barely understood structure, and I'm hoping that we will have made a big step towards understanding what it's doing with all that information it's getting. So, Great. Okay, Jeffrey, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomimetics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Program. Oh, that was fun. Yeah. You did yeah. so well. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. Oh, great and Thank you for listening. <laughs> I'm trying to think of all the people I've insulted along the way. And do <laughs> <laughs> no. Write all these apologetic Oh, emails. I didn't mention so and so. Oh, yeah, exactly. I attributed this to that. No, don't worry. It's interesting that indeed the system is indeed not as clean as we would like it to be, and how we want also how it is represented in literature. Right? Mm. So, and this is, I think, we, we, have to, we have to be so careful with that. Because we we built this caricature of what this is. I mean, of course, as soon as you get closer to more realistic task conditions, it will not look at all like this. So maybe if you even take the wall situation, maybe this big blob you see in the corner is much closer to an ecologically valid response of mm. your grid cells mm. than the beautifully, nicely, right? It's definitely possible. We, we cannot exclude that right now. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's sort of a scary thought. Yes. Well, um, scary, but also interesting, you know. I mean, I think... The, the field tends to attract a lot of engineers and physicists and people who have a certain way of thinking about things. Um, and I think the sort of niche that I inhabit is a slightly unusual one because I'm more of a psychologist slash ethologist by inclination. Mm -hmm. um, I, I look at these beautiful elaborate models of, of interacting oscillations and, and this, that and the other, and I think there's a spectacular um, intellectual achievement is that really what it's for, you know, in the messy real world when an animal is climbing up and down over rocks? Is, have we really got this, this, you know, these fine grain? Maybe, maybe we have, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but I do think we need some people who are slightly more grounded in the psychology and the behaviour and stuff who sort mm -hmm. of think, look, you know, really what... Well, this is also the point that, I think also the point Tony made about the robots, for instance. So mm. to, to, to just try to convince people, look, if you want to build models of these kinds of things, link it to a robot, because it gets you a little bit closer to real behavior. Because yeah. leash, this was a bit my, 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 my beef earlier about these grid cell models, these attractive grid cells models. Uh, they all came out in 2006. We also produced one. Um, but the only one that actually was linked up to a robot and showed, look, this gives you a grid-like response over time, mm. Mm. That's the one we produced because it was linked to a robot. Right. All right. the others were more like conceptual models. Like, okay, yeah, you can mm. imagine that, but the stability conditions are dramatically different. Right, right. right? Yeah. So yeah. so I think this is really a contribution that this more robot-oriented thing can make. That you yeah. really say, look, 
consider the computational principles in the context of this embodied real-world system that has to satisfy all these constraints. If the robot doesn't give you behavior that looks plausible, forget the model. Yeah, because I I mean, I think it's a really important point because, you know, when you're um, building a computational model, you can have perfect sensors. You know, you can have an absolutely veridical velocity signal, but the real world isn't like that. Sensors Mm -hmm. are very imperfect. They accumulate error quickly. There's a lot of, you know, uncertainty and, and conflict and this, that and the other. And I mean, so you asked me what, you know, robotics has taught me and, and one of the things I learned early on, so my husband, Jim, who was um, a roboticist, um, who was trying to, to get robots to integrate sensory inputs from, from you know, different sensory modalities. And, and it just seemed like a really simple problem. It just turned out to be incredibly difficult because when you look at what raw sensory data look like, it's just a mess, you know. And how do you extract spatial signals from all of that? And so I, I think you're absolutely right. I think if you want your computational model to have any kind of credibility, you need to show that it could work in the messy real world, mm-hmm. given the constraints of noisy sensors and this, that and the other. And right. And so I think that's why you that. need the robustness of multiple systems. And yeah. So I think the grid cell data is beautiful, that you have this multi-module system that the Moses have shown that gives you an actual location in space. But uh, that's still only one way of... of of, of working out where you are mm. and it could be wrong and mm. then what's your backups and I think the beautiful thing about animals is they have lots of different backups and yeah. they're, they're potentially independent because you might want them to be you don't want you don't want everything to depend on your head direction system yeah. and people without a, a good sense of direction get around perfectly well in everyday life so you know how yeah. are they doing well some that? do some do some, <laughs> well, well, some don't yeah, well, they, they, yeah. they make mistakes mm-hmm. but they, they generally have strategies for compensating and that's what uh, I think biological things are good at is you know compensating for the lack of perfect information compensating when some parts of the systems fail mm. Uh, mm. and that's where robots fall down right now we usually have one way of doing stuff yeah, yeah. And for instance, we're trying to build driverless cars now. And some people, you know, like Elon Musk, say five years away, we'll have it. But but what he's got is a system that works when you've got nice white lines down the edge of the road. Mm. Then you can drive. Mm. But he doesn't have anything like the multiple systems that actually give you a robust, fail, fail-proof, fail-safe system that's never going to crash. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and, uh, and other people will say, look, we're 50 years away from having that for driverless cars. Really? Well, another example really? of that is uh, the importance of this more embodied, ecologically valid approach. Take, take all this noise we had about uh, what's called deep queue learning. Like now we have a deep learning network that can also act and then it can learn these Atari games. Um, okay, that's cute. But actually what you see is that in order to make that work, they have to randomly sample the input space. Now think about mm. that, right? That's great when you write an algorithm. Mm. But when I'm a behaving system, my input stream is continuous. I cannot jump around like a frog yeah, yeah. and make sure I have an even sampling. And we already, yeah. this has been documented since the early 90s in these more embodied models. Right. Uh, this has also been shown to be a major weakness in these sort of hierarchical classifier systems that people also exploit in deep learning. Right, right. But... Uh, that means as soon as he thinks, and this is not considered a problem right now, yeah. because no one is thinking it through in behavioral terms. Yeah. And I think that's a real problem. Because now, in some sense, we're, we're getting a lot of noise in the literature, a mm. lot of people being distracted, mm. and, and also, if I think, misinformed, 
because we're not inc not imposing the right constraints. And mm -hmm. in my opinion, in these models, we must insist on bringing together behavior, anatomy, and physiology. Any model must answer that. And if you're not able to do that, it's under constraint. And uh, for me, it's noise. Yeah, it's not necessarily yeah. helping. Yeah. But it's it's not. It of course, it makes life more difficult. And replicating yeah. colorful pictures in MATLAB is a lot mm. easier. I mean, it sort of <laughs> depends what you're trying to do, though. I mean, some people are trying to understand the brain, but some people are trying to build neural networks that do things. Mm -hmm. And um, looking at the brain, it may give you some ideas, but replicating the brain is not necessarily a good thing to do because it is... That's fine, you know, but the, 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 they shouldn't claim that so, they explain anything yeah, about the brain. Yeah, so, so, but as the people, you know, I can, I can see, you know, I can see that the... Discipline is full of all sorts of people doing stuff that's just totally useless. But I do think that there are um, that there are kind of insights that you can get from stuff like this as well. Sure, you can, think, but but it, it's also a matter of being being upfront about what your constraints are. Yeah. Of course, anyone is free to play around to get an idea about some competition. Great. Yeah. Right. But be clear about it. Don't don't yeah. pretend that suddenly now we have an explanation for for how a brain might do something. Yeah. Right? yeah. This is it's people are overconfident. Yes. And absolutely. <laughs> and there's too much mathematosis going on. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. But anyway, behavior is the way forward. Well, you know, yeah. You need you need all of these different. But you do any modeling things. yourself? Um. Not. Not much. Mm. I've done a little bit. Okay. Um. And I've just hired a, a modelling person actually, who's who's um, worked on the ring tractor network, mm -hmm. and so we're going to get him to try and model a spherical tractor and just play around with it. And okay. See what that does.